0: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Uh,
1: good evening and welcome to Indiana Jones, uh, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is a little bit different. Uh, we are calling this episode, if you've, you've gotten the adverts for it, uh, not your father's archaeology, the interface of archaeology, science, and technology. And the question that I'm posing, and uh, which I'm going to answer, I guess, rhetorically, uh, given my own perspective, is uh, will extensive excavation become an artifact of contemporary archaeological science? Now, uh, I have spent most of my career pretty much involved in archaeological science in a big way and I have used a variety of techniques to get at archaeological problems. And, and as this discipline has become more specialized, there has been a need for archaeological scientists to get increasingly involved in, uh, in, in, in excavations and in surveys and in the general search for culture, if you will. And uh, the role of science has been... Uh, extended significantly over the past couple of decades to the point at which uh, we really sort of need to tell ourselves, to ask ourselves, what's really driving the bus here? Is science driving it or is the pursuit of culture? And the questions of what culture means, is that driving it? And the answer is not simple. I think that because method and scientific method in particular has become such an overwhelming component of archaeological investigation and and the need for the kind of knowledge that you have to have in order to apply these methods has become so extensive – we really are sort of trying to figure out how to strike a balance here. And uh, in the beginning, I think, you know, and again, uh, we're going back, say, half a century or certainly 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, scientists from a variety of different domains, um, anatomists in the case of early hominid research and uh, specialists in ancient vegetation for people who are studying, say, or say for example, the ancient landscapes of North America, or, or South America or europe um, and and ge- geology experts who are trying to explain why artifacts are buried in certain type of deposits and that, what that means for trying to understand the archaeological sequence of events uh, that was a supplementary task and, and and by and large, you would be in search of an archaeological problem or a, a problem related to culture that would allow you. to to keep the focus on uh, the explanation of cultural change and essentially to use the science as a supplementary source of collection of raw information which would in turn allow you to make interpretations of the uh cultural distributions, if you will, for example, sets of stone tools in the case of hunter-gatherers, or distributions of certain houses in, in the case of early villages, so that you would understand um what kinds of environments, for example, these people lived in, or what kind of processes related to to, to the landscape or, or to the earth itself resulted in the accumulation. Or the burial of these types of uh, archaeological features, what those were, and that became really sort of uh, the coincidence or, or or the the merging of a variety of different types of disciplines, and it, it really archaeology sort of became an interdisciplinary operation in which the driver of the bus, as I said before, was was basically the cultural expert, the person who was trying to put the uh, questions of the human condition, if you will, into the foreground and uh, used the uh, tools that the scientists brought to the table to String it all together and to integrate it. In, in other words, to to get a feel what the environment was like from from the earth scientists and from the the botanists and, and for the vegetation experts and, and, and from the biologists, and then to generate interpretations of the archaeological findings. Well, at this point in time, I think it has become a lot more complex because the science is so intricate. And the advances are so great that and, and there's almost a blurriness between the people who are conducting what we used to call the supplementary investigations and the actual investigation and, and, and the core of the research itself. Now, um, in the United States, I think we are uh, – or in North America, let's say even more broadly um, – we're, we're certainly much more focused on culture as, as the end point and as the end product for delivering the package, if you will. We want to understand culture in the broad sense of what anthropology is, what the human condition em- emerged as and evolved into. And we use the science in a sense. As I said before, to to try to bolster our arguments and and to sort of entrench them in a a way that we are able to establish fixed data points. When did this happen? What did this happen? What happened at this particular point in time? What did the landscape in which those people lived in look like? And, And these were. Again, these were pretty well-established pieces of, of in, information that you could sort of uh, get a grounding for and you could understand how how uh, the entire process from the selection of particular places to live in the case of, of villages or, or even hunter-gatherer societies, how those were selected, uh, how they were used by the people who lived there, and how they became uh, – how they became and and into uh, how they uh, let's uh, excuse me how they evolved into a situation where you where the archaeologist got there and actually found those remains and was able to sort of put together this entire picture. In other words, it was the selection of a place, the operation of various functions in that place, how the people lived at the time, and the condition of the landscape when we actually. Discovered it. So these are are critical questions that, uh, really sort of formed a very, very nice picture. Everybody had a role. All the investigators in the team had a role. The archaeologist was the leader and the person who drove the train because he answered the great questions, which are the ones related to culture and and how this fit into the general picture. And that was that. I I think, as this moved along and you you would uh certainly in terms of the pedagogy you would take courses in archaeological science but there was normally one or two courses and the rest of it was archaeological theory anthropological theory uh the four field uh paradigm which we have here in North America that that sort of grounded you in a uh, shall we say an anthropological a frame of mind a cultural frame of mind that, that we, we, we always kept culture in the forefront and we always tried to link these developments and, and the archaeological findings into that broader picture that's changing and I think uh, I can't really pinpoint what happened when it happened or, or, or really but I, w- I, do, I will say I think I know how it, how it happened it simply happened as a fun, function of the explosion of archaeological science. And that, of course, is a subset of the explosion of science generally. And of course, a broader parallel trend over the past five years, which is the incredible explosion in information technology. So that with so many pieces of information and so many outlets that we have for communicating and for integrating various data sets, it, the amount of information that you can incorporate is, is huge and you need more more specialists and it gets to the point, I think, where the specialists sort of overwhelm the greater picture and you lose sight of what you're really doing in the greater sense or do you? And that's my question, too, because in Europe the, and, and in other parts of the world, uh, there has always been – well, I won't say there has always been, but but by and large, I would say if you want to sort of go generic on this, there's been more of a focus on the archaeology itself. Yes, it's part of culture, and we've talked about this in previous programs. We'll talk about it again uh, subsequently. But archaeology has been a separate entity, not necessarily tied to the broader picture of cultural change, but it's just become its own discipline. And we've talked about this again. I, I would reiterate there are different types of archaeology, there's the classical school of archaeology, which is concerned with monuments and uh, the effective accomplishments of the elite versus the anthropological school, which is more concerned with how actual normal people lived and, and, and how the, the the average hunter-gatherers and village residents, if, if you're talking about later periods in prehistory or getting into history, how they lived. But uh, archaeology sort of became its, its – in that sense, in Europe and certainly in the classical perspective, it becomes its own little world, less tied to questions of, of broader cultural and cultural evolution and more tied to actually what you find on the ground and what it tells you. And, of course, that sort of limits the circle of investigation into the people who actually made the monuments that uh, – Survive and are testaments to the so called great cultures or civilizations in the world, and so i 'm going to explore this in some, some greater detail when we return i 'm going to talk a little bit about how I see the the quest for method sort of overwhelming the traditional approaches that we have in archaeological pedagogy, which are largely concerned with theory, and uh, we will talk about this after these words.
2: Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoone will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-geoarc.com. Now, back to the program.
1: We're back and, uh, we are talking about the encroachment, if you will, of science on the field of archaeology. I, 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 I don't know if that sounds uh, pejorative. It's not meant to be, but it's certainly gotten to a point where, uh, science is, is becoming such a major component of archaeological exploration and investigation that it it really has i think it's starting to sneak up and become the major issue in what you do when you do archaeology if 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 you're saying okay what we do in archaeology is we find things rather than say uh, be be much more intellectual about it and say well we want to say we want to see how particular uh distributions of of material things uh correspond to the emergence of the human condition um I think that that there are a lot of people who are going into archaeology because they 're fascinated with the actual exploration of discovery uh, the uh, the science of discovery and the methods that are being used for that and so let 's talk about them a little bit in in some detail because again, as I say, they are overwhelming the discipline in a structural sense that in, in other words, the method is sort of becoming the objective in in a way and and a couple of of, of major Achievements in this regard are, first of all, the emergence of geographic information systems, or GIS. Um, and what that means in archaeology uh, in general is the ability to actually structure patterned observations into sets of plots, mapped plots, that give you information that you can uh superimposed in a layered sense uh for a particular area that you're exploring so that for example you can impo- you could superimpose the map of soils of an area the map of the geology of the area which is not exactly the soils but reflects say, l- uh, let's say the bedrock of an area the location of springs and the the location of let's say in, in, in a simple sense of uh, villages or or archaeological deposits of a certain time frame which have a certain pattern, and if you have let 's say all these five layers built onto one another, one layer on another on another, you est- establish these extreme uh, extremely obvious correlations between the various sets of data that allow you to see why sites are in certain places. Do they correspond more closely to the soils that are there? Are the villages located with respect to a specific soil? Are they related to a a specific set of water sources, rivers or springs or, or runnels? or temporary uh, sources of water are they situated in in proximity to a certain bedrock type and on and on and years ago you would spend days weeks trying to establish these correlations whereas right now you can simply generate a map based on on um, Global positioning systems or highly refined coordinate systems, and you can create these maps, you know, in a a matter of hours. Well, I'm I'm exaggerating in some cases, but you can certainly get baseline maps in 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 a matter of hours, and you can start to establish these relationships and see the connections um, between the various layers and the archaeological distributions, which will consist of one or two layers themselves. Now, when you start to increase the number of layers, well, then you're looking into uh, a way of digesting this information, analyzing this information, and putting it together. And to do that, you would have to have a certain expertise in statistics, and in the manipulation of computer information and software and statistics. And where I'm going with this is that simply to understand these correlations, even though, again, they're facilitated by the the geographic information system mapping, to actually look at what what variables are responsible for what relationships on the archaeological record, you have to have a firm grasp of statistics and mathematics and computer science and mapping and so what you're seeing is that there's a tremendous amount of science and mathematics that's involved in the interpretation of archaeological sites. So uh, the question becomes, well, okay, um, that's a lot of work. And it's no longer that you get a specific type of expert to come in and do that information, but as the principal and, and do those manipulations, because you have so many different sources of scientific information that it's incumbent upon the principal archaeologist to actually integrate that material. And let's even assume that the individual scientists are doing their particular manipulations to to generate their types of inter- inter- interpretations well, you have to look at if you have five layers of information you have to try to integrate inter- integrate and interpret five sets of information and find the correlations amongst them that put together archaeological patterning in the record, so you have to have a reasonable understanding of every single scientist's piece of the puzzle, and you have to be able to incorporate that and to do that, you too have to have a very firm and generic or general uh, concept of what the science is all about, and you have to put all that information together and the demands of of the uh, that each one of these disciplines is, is increasingly more complex. And so the principal archaeologist finds himself in a situation where he really has to be a, a, a pretty, uh, pretty good uh, jack of all trades as far as the science part of it is concerned. And so the question becomes, well, how does that sort of integrate into the anthropological part of things? And I'm not saying it can't be done. It certainly can. People do it. But as the information and as the data become more complex and the tools for their interpretations become increasingly more diverse and and more complex as well, then the demands on, on the lead archaeologists. Get greater and greater. And so as I say, uh, the method really becomes the message and it, it, it starts to really become an all absorbing piece of information that, um, really requires a a tremendous amount amount of thinking and uh... integrative thinking but really does it take you into the broader questions of understanding what the human condition is or are you simply going to get lost in the puzzle of trying to put together all these independent data sets i'm not sure i have the answer But the fact of the matter is that this is where I'm going. This is where the science is going. Now, in addition to geographic information systems, one of the major advances that we've had in the past few years is satellite imagery. And satellite imagery is the ability to utilize increasingly sophisticated mapping systems and computer systems in satellites that are revolving around the Earth and being able to map these. Uh, the images that the satellites generate to to precisions of actually centimeters on the ground despite the huge distances that the satellites are flying above the Earth so you can get resolution of particular features on the ground, disturbances on the ground, be they archaeological or natural, with a tremendous amount of clarity from these satellites. And you have, of course, uh, mapping experts who are very, very skilled in putting this information together. And so the type of work and the type of, of patterning that you could find in, uh, say, villages or hunter-gatherer sites or monuments or uh, sacred sites that kind of information can now be assembled in a matter of days, whereas years ago you might not be able to develop these maps and you might not be able to get those types of pictures of cl- and, and that type of clarity in an archaeological area that you were working in for an entire career you can now ha- you now have the ability to look at these patterns uh with a tremendous amount of clarity and, in in a matter of days and and so this has uh, exponentially expanded the range of archaeological interpretation, because you can now now can you not only have the ability to look at one particular area of uh, let 's say a time frame that you 're looking at, but you can look at many areas at the same time and you can develop uh, pictures of patterns that probably would have taken like two or three experts uh, a lifetime to assemble. You could probably do what you might be able to do it yourself with the help of some colleagues and start to understand patterning patterning uh, in, in, in a fraction of the time that it would have taken years ago. And this is especially true <clears throat> from satellite imagery. And um, what what we've seen, for example, uh, a couple of the uh, classic cases in which this has been done is my irrigation systems and uh, the southwestern irrigation systems in, uh, <clears throat> in Arizona and New Mexico where where canal structures and, uh, the distribution of engineering systems from the Anasazi and, and from the ancient southwest, southwest, western people in, uh, the first millennium AD are able to be synthesized because of the imagery that, uh, that has been generated again from, from the refi- uh, from the latest satellite flyovers and the intricate mapping strategies and mapping systems that we now have. A digital elevation models allow you to, uh, to look at changes in ter- the terrain with a tremendous amount of resolution to the point where you can pick up like meter, uh, or half meter or let's say one and a half foot resolution for, um, for elevation changes that, uh, allow you to uh, to interpret the engineering patterns that have been undertaken in these prehistoric societies. And so this just exponentially accelerates your synthetic ability to put this information together. So uh, again, remote sensing imagery is, is one of the um, uh, principal advances that we've made. Now that said, um, I will tell you that in some cases, and this is something that surfaced on a project of mine um uh, actually, a few weeks ago, a colleague of mine had been working in um, in Pakistan for many, many years, and we had generated some interpretations on the uh, emergence of the Indus Valley civilization and its relationship to rivers and climate over the past five thousand years and we had started to assemble bits and pieces of this system that uh, related to uh, changing stream flow networks, and how the changing stream flow, flow networks related to the distribution of um, urban sites along the Indus Valley and its tributaries, and we were starting to synthesize a picture of that and how how that related to the changing flow of the rivers to changing climates and to the emergence of trade networks along the major rivers and lo and behold, about a week ago, a huge uh, integration of that information uh, came together and was published in a major journal, and these guys had assembled a tremendous amount of high-resolution imagery to effectively develop a pattern in which they demonstrated the migration northward of the Indus Valley peoples in response to changing climates, uh, the desiccation of the landscape generally northward and the, the uh, progression of human movements towards the uh, front of the monsoon because uh, people followed the pockets of increased precipitation as the, uh, the general climate over the past 5,000 years became increasingly drier. Well, we had come up with a similar kind of explanation based on less high-tech mapping uh, many, many years ago, and we had generated similar types of interpretation based on what's very clearly a less, a less sophisticated mapping, but nevertheless information that we were able to procure through the old-fashioned way. So it, it, you, you get to this point where uh, you try to figure out, well, how much do you really need the high tech and how much can you simply generate? uh the information through very long strenuous and detailed study and uh, the fact of the matter is that we're getting converging inf- interpretations using both the old fashioned way of doing things by looking at a variety of sites aligned with with what we what we were able to map in, in, in terms of traditional mapping, and these guys were able to generate with high resolution mapping and it 's sort of gratifying to see that the same patterns emerge we're just coming at it from different ways and of course, these guys were able to look at a much broader swath of information than we did, and yet we came up with similar types of inter- interpretations so you see that there is a convergence very often of rigorous old fashioned uh, methodologies and those increasingly sophisticated high resolution mappings and structured investigations that characterize the contemporary uh, pattern of archaeological exploration more in a minute.
2: talk 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 that's all we do is talk if you'd like to talk call us toll free right now at 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 that's it that's
0: it (laughs) voiceamerica.com women make up more than half of the country's workforce Companies that have women on the board generally set the pace and outperform other companies in the same industries. So why aren't we using the power of voice and choice to move ahead? Tune in to The Awe Factor, advancing women everywhere. With host Carol Sassino, you'll hear from the business and thought leaders that took chances and made a difference. Listen as they share their stories with Carol every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Termino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry the lgbt community and the sex positive world from kink to non-monogamy nothing is off limits plus you can call in to join the conversation sex out loud airs every friday 8 p.m eastern 5 pacific on the voice america variety channel
1: Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants, with hosts Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners
2: just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra Now, back to the program. Can you do-
1: We were talking about uh, the exponential increase in scientific, in scientific uh, knowledge and, and in information technology that allows you to process information in archaeology so much more quickly and with so much more resolution than it was possible in the past. And, and I, I just want to make a couple more points on the remote sensing element of exploration um you you've all heard clearly uh, about how uh, there are these massive searches for um, for cultures ancient cultures and civilizations and where where are the uh, where are these buried well for lack of a better word treasures or known monuments that have been described in ancient texts and clearly have to be in in uh, in parts of the old world and and in, in certainly in the Near East and, and places like the Near East and uh, those that have been verified certainly on the basis of the texts and for which we have reliable information. Well, right now with remote sensing technology, those finds it can be identified from satellite imagery because of the ability of satellite imagery to detect incredible types of disturbances in the landscape so that if you know the general location of a particular item or a particular cultural feature with remote sensing imagery. If it's a significant enough disturbance to the ground, you can probably pick it up. As I was saying before, we've made tremendous inroads in understanding Mayan road networks, irrigation systems, linear features that have been hidden for years because you couldn't pick them up in uh, standard aerial photographs, even the ones that are pre pre-modern which of course very helpful because they're not obscured by contemporary landscape disturbances but the, the aerial photographs from the say from the 1930s and the 1920s when the first uh planes started um flyovers those are the most important ones because they give you a measure of what the undisturbed landscape is like and um, they provide a tremendous amount of information. Well, now you have so such high-resolution mapping and and, uh, and photography and digital imagery that you're actually able to filter out the disturbances of the contemporary landscape and find residual elements, for example, roads, irrigation systems, streams, buried channels, uh, ancient terraces, and and uh, floodplain uh, features that you can actually Const- reconstruct those, even though on the surface they're obscured by contemporary landscaping. So the potential here is enormous. Uh, it's only going to get better as our technology uh, ramps up and as uh, as as our ability to process information gets greater. Um, and again, going back to the ability of computers and statistical models to process this data so much more quickly than it was ever done before. So uh, the future is really great for that. Now, one of the interesting situations that I think uh, becomes very important, and this, I guess, for many archaeologists is sort of a sad note, is, is that, of course, uh, money becomes an issue and, and your ability to, to get uh, grants and your ability to get uh, research funding, especially in an economy like that of the present, is, is a little more dip- difficult. Now, couple that with the fact that the pace of development still remains very, very high. And in many places, especially in urban settings, where you can expect to find um, residual evidence of, of previous cultures, you can't get there anymore. You simply, first of all, you don't have the money to do it. And second of all, in urban environments, the accessibility to get underneath the ground is limited. By the incredible maze of subsurface utilities and disturbances and and uh, functioning infrastructure beneath the surface of the ground that inhibits you for from actually exploring inform uh, for information that may be several centuries old in the case of of. Uh, certainly North American cities, which is one of the areas that we've been looking at. And it's you can't simply go down to Times Square in New York City and and open a hole in the ground. It can't be done. And your ability to actually get into the subsurface, even though that you can at some point and at some depth, you can reach to the levels that are pristine. You can't do that anymore because uh, the maze of infrastructure and the maze of of, uh, linear lines and phone systems and sewer lines and water systems and gas mains, all of that impedes your ability to actually undertake um, archaeological excavation. Yes, there are occasional lots from which you can, for which you can get clearances. And, uh, there are, in most cases, not all, but there are reasonably good maps of, of what these infrastructural components are. But in some cases, those aren't reliable. And if you hit a gas line, uh, good night, I mean, you've created, uh, you could create a very dangerous situation, um, that, that can cause a permanent damage. To an urban area you don 't want to get into that, but the fact of the matter is that right now, because of of our tools and our sophisticated mapping tools and our sophisticated um, and our sophisticated models of data manipulation, we can actually do a whole lot more with a whole lot less. Um, one of the projects that we were involved in um, was a compliance project related to the construction of a subway system in in upper Manhattan here in New York City. And we were able to generate a reconstruction of a buried landscape of New York City based on the procurement of uh, geological cores at four separate locations – along the line of the subway and we were able to do this because uh, we were pointed to uh, we got some clearance for a certain part of of the area of the, of the subway of the subway the projected subway line and we were able to probe those areas to, to depth And based on our understanding of what the subsurface looked like from previous projects and from from previous studies, we were actually able to put together a sequence of geological events, combined with a minimal amount of archaeological information to generate a model of what the landscape looked like. We, for example, procured shell deposits that told us a tremendous amount about what the conditions were like when the Dutch actually got to New York City and what the shoreline looked like based on – the types of shells that were actually procured in the deposits, because saltwater shells and freshwater shells have different composition. Uh, there's oxygen isotope analyses that tell you what kind of, uh, water conditions laid down the materials that, uh, the, the calcium carbonate that was deposited on the shells and also the types of the shells that, uh, thrived in those particular Deposits are, uh, basically governed by saline or salt rich versus freshwater conditions. So based on all that information and on looking at the dirt itself, we could tell you when the, what, when, what area was still, uh, obtaining salt water in response to rising sea level and which areas in the landscape actually were still being fed by rivers that attested to a uh, more terrestrial or land-based terrain. So on that basis, we were able to generate a map of the changing landscape in that particular location – since 20,000 years ago, and we, we set up a six, seven stage model documenting the changing terrain, the changing environment, the changing landscapes, and the changing ecology of those areas over that period of time and that was done on the basis of simply four, four holes that were stuck into the ground and the procurement of the dirt and the shells and the plant remains of that information plus the historic recovery that we got from those same um, deposits, uh, the upper deposits that were post prehistoric and on that basis we were able to, to construct a model of how the New York City shoreline emerged. Over the past twenty thousand years that is an example of what type of resolution you can obtain if you're very very careful and if you maximize the yield um, from from the particular excavation again these cores were all of two and a half inches wide, but they were continuous, and they allowed us to procure a tremendous amount of information in a relatively short period of time. Coupled with uh, the geological records that we had, the historical records that we had, um, oral uh, not oral histories, but written histories from the Dutch Dutch period, and again, we are able to maximize this information yield and reconstruct landscapes and human settlement based on limited data and we'll We'll discuss the ramifications of this for future archaeology when we get back in the next couple of minutes.
2: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your
0: opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversations, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down to earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety channel. Listening can truly change your life. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business. But how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety.
2: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. (laughs) VoiceAmerica.com
0: You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra Now, back to the program.
1: This is Joe Ryan. I'm back with the last segment of today's program. And as I will remind you, our topic is formally uh not your father's archaeology, the interface of archaeology, science and technology. And I, I want to sort of broaden the perspective a little bit again and, and and just sort of bring this back to to a general question that we're going to have going forward. As I as I said in in, in the beginning of the program, uh, archaeological science is is just becoming a very, very big part of this discipline and um it's it's fortuitous and, and it's fortunate in many, many ways because the world of archaeological exploration in many ways is shrinking. We are not going to be able to do those massive excavations that were done in the early, earlier parts of the last, and, and middle parts of the last century where you could simply go out to a piece of property somewhere and, and just excavate to your heart's content. We don't have the money for it uh, anymore. And the development development is now driving archaeological research more than anything else. And with development, there's a certain amount of constraint in what you can look at. So the tools that you have at your disposal are becoming increasingly more sophisticated. You have to do more with less, but you also have to do more with uh, tools that have no limits in terms of what they can yield uh, in terms of information. We're up against situations right now where uh, because of the nature of where archaeological exploration occurs in areas of development, in areas that are, for example, heavily polluted and are hazardous sites in many cases, we can actually glean tremendous amounts of information from hazardous waste sites by simply using sophisticated remote sensing imagery. We don't have to put a shovel in the ground. You don't have to do any probing in some cases. You can simply look at patterns that pierce through the disturbance, and if you couple that with with sophisticated mapping and mapping that was done uh, prior to the actual period of disturbance and pollution, you can uh, actually generate... Uh, reconstructions of what these landscapes look like, and uh, you simply don 't have to do anything invasive now that 's not going to be done everywhere I mean obviously we 're still going to do excavations, but these excavations are going to be dictated by development concerns, and that 's a message that that we 've transmitted uh, previously it 's certainly uh, what's driving archaeological exploration in North America and also everywhere else in the world where cultural heritage sites become the most important issue. You will do, for example, as they say, cultural heritage management in areas uh, in the Third World, for example, where tourism is going to be a major component of economies. And when that's done, obviously the monuments have to be saved, the monuments have to be addressed, uh, and, and, and preserved and as a result of that there will be more and more focused archaeological exploration and that's fine and well and good because uh, we now have the tools that enable us to maximize interpretations and to maximize the integrative potential of the archaeological record based on all of this. Um, we're, we're, we're being dictated effectively as to what we can do, what we can explore and where we can Take our fancy gadgets and, and, and start to track this. And that's, that's uh, the, the flip side of it and the good side of it. Again, I, I'm saying that uh, we have to – one of the important lessons of this is we have to train our students – uh, to be able to make these adjustments because, again, when I was going to graduate school, he, the sky was the limit in terms of, of where you could con- conduct your research. You could do your research in many different parts of the world, in North America, in Europe, in, in uh, East Africa, in Asia, in all sorts of land, land, uh Countries That can't be done anymore. Um, a lot of the more spectacular archaeological sites are in war zones and in areas that are politically unstable. They're also for, for – and in many cases for good reason – being done by the people – who live in those countries because they've level, uh, they've developed levels of sophistication that allow them to investigate their own heritage, which is just as as it should be, and uh, they of course are also privy to the information and technological explosions that have largely been developed in the Western world and and, and which are being transported and, and exported rather into the developing world. And so um, again, the ability to use the techniques of archaeology um is 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 being refined. We while while our uh areas of exploration are shrinking our ability to maximize the yield from those shrinking areas has been expanded enormously so that we can do again as i was saying before we can do a lot more with a lot le- uh, we can do a lot more with a lot less in in places that again um are, are are becoming increasingly less accessible and are probably in many cases going to going to be explored by the populations that live in those areas um the ability of of basically Western oriented scientists to go all over the world and and sort of poke holes wherever they want. It's not going to happen forever. It's 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 starting to be limited by by the exigencies of of geopolitics. And uh just as well in many cases because um the tools are available to uh, To indigenous populations and, and and to the countries themselves to undertake this kind of work and uh, again um, like I say, the entire world is changing from an archaeological perspective. And I think what, one of the messages that I want to leave you with is we have to train our students and we have to train the up-and-coming generation of archaeologists to come to grips with a changing archaeological world in which methodologies are becoming all-important and that anthropological umbrella that was always... Uh, considered to be the primary governing model and paradigm for which you did your work, that has to be rethought in many cases because uh, there's simply so much information that one has to get and has to master before one can do this type of investigation that, uh, again, academic programs and training programs really have to be rethought and they have to be constantly rethought and that's not happening. That's not keeping pace with the... Uh, with the explosion in technology, and part of the reason is that some of the professors and some of the uh, the folks who are are doing the teaching are simply not up to date, and uh, they're uh, they're teaching what they know, and uh, in many cases that may not be adequate for up and coming generations. Now I know that the universities are trying to address these issues, and certainly um, as the private sector grows in terms of its impact on the archaeological um, profession is enhanced, uh, there, w- these changes will be made. Um, but it is important for us to populate our universities with professors who are familiar with the technology and at the same time can keep the perspective, the anthropological perspective that has governed training in, in, in for so many years. But again, that balance is going to have to change. And uh, I know it is starting to change. I think we're just sort of in the early phases of trying to assess the importance of technology and science insofar as uh, structured archaeological and academic training programs are concerned. But we'll get there. I think the question is how are we going to get there and how are we going to minimize the transition as we go from more traditional pedagogic models into ones that are more directly applicable and ones that are going to allow our people, as they are trained through a very sophisticated program of training, to simply come out of the university and to jump into the applied archaeological world and on that note I'd like to close this program and to uh, invite you to stay tuned to our upcoming episodes which will be addressing a variety of different types of issues on geopolitics of archaeology and a variety of other issues and until that time this is Joe Ryan signing off and uh, we'll see you next week thank you
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.